Good morning, fellow Appalosophers. Welcome to Appalosophy Weekly. And forget Face ID because Mask ID is finally here with iOS 14.5. macOS Big Sur 11.2 revised Bluetooth functionality. And Google is killing off a built-in YouTube app on yet another Apple device. Tim Apple will face a lengthy deposition in the fight against Tim Epic. All that and more, but stay tuned until the end because this week in Apple Crime, we break down a teenage phone heist gone wrong. I'm your host, Bram Shank, and let's get ready to unwrap the tech of today. But first, let's check in with our special guest, Mr. Gil Hermie Rambo. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good, man. Taking it one day at a time. I'm still in quarantine. Yeah, me too. Hanging in there. Keeps me busy. Yeah, same. Podcast. <laughs> uh, actually, I'm more busy than usual today because I tried to update my M1 MacBook Air to 11.2 yesterday, and it didn't go as planned. Let me just say that. <laughs> well, why don't you let's get right into it. So break that down for us. What was going on? <laughs> well, um, it, it wasn't just me. Uh, actually, a friend of mine had the same issue. Apparently, 11.2 is uh, breaking some M1 Max. Uh, and the only solution is you have to basically... DFU restore the Mac, which is kind of weird. Like, like it's something we're used to doing with iPhones and, and things like that. But yeah, you'll have to put your Mac in DFU mode and then reinstall everything. So, so educate the viewers on. So, why is was DFU mode exclusive to iOS, and why is it now on Mac? I mean, it has something to do with Apple Silicon and the architecture and things like that. But can you break that down for people? Yeah, so it's been a thing since the T2 Mac, so the, the ones with the touch bar, they also have DFU, which is a more low-level way to restore the operating system because these machines, they don't just have like a, a hard drive or an SSD with a, an operating system installed. They also have all of this other operating system stuff around it that makes it tick and when something goes wrong in, in that stuff, then the only solution is to basically reflash everything. So basically wipe everything clean and start from scratch. And uh, it didn't used to be the case because Macs were basically just like PCs. Uh, and as long as you like format the hard drive and then reinstall there, you would be effectively erasing everything. But just erasing a hard drive now or an SSD and, and reinstalling doesn't eliminate everything anymore. It's not like that. So, yeah, the architecture has changed, basically. Yeah, so having to go into this DFU mode, the device firmware upgrade mode, for those who might not know what that means, it's interesting because a lot of people will boot up an M1 Mac or an Apple Silicon Mac for the first time and not see any difference from its Intel counterpart other than hey, the M1 feels a little bit faster. And there's a lot going on under the hood that Apple has had to optimize, and they're still optimizing it day by day, and that's why it's important to stay up to date. But as you stated, you know that, that gets tricky when sometimes that update won't even go through. Yeah, definitely. So be careful with updates, as always. <laughs> Do them when you have a backup ready and when you don't have anything important to get done. Fortunately, I have another Mac here that I can keep uh, doing my work while I recover the other one. 
And and that's the thing, you know, not not all of us have a backup Mac. Yeah. And you know, it's fun to beta test, but you have to take all that into consideration. Are you know, are you willing to lose the data that's on that computer? So that's you know, that's a good PSA mm-hmm. for the viewers out there. No, but I want to zero in on you for a sec, Mr. Rambo, because you're a popular guy. When I hear your name, I think not only of the legacy apps you've created, like Chibi Studio and Airbuddy, but I also think of the year 2018, an <laughs> Apple Watch Series 4, <laughs> and an iPhone XS and XS Max in gold. That's when you, back in 2018, quarter 4 2018, is when you became a leaker, correct? Actually, it was a year before. Uh, it all started with this um, software image for the HomePod that, for some reason, which we still don't know to this day, Apple shipped uh, a software image for the HomePod on public servers before the HomePod was available to users. Apparently, they were testing uh, the HomePod with some uh, people internally, and for some reason, they couldn't like distribute the software updates uh, through like a VPN or something. And then that software update ended up in a publicly accessible URL, and someone found it fairly quickly, of course. Um, and, uh, I went, uh, looking into that, uh, firmware image and I found a glyph of, of what would be the iPhone 10, which we didn't know back then. I remember that now. Yeah. I remember that seeing the notch and going, what is this? Yeah. Yeah. So that was, uh, quite, quite incredible. <laughs> and between then and, and 2018, a lot of stuff happened. Like I joined nine to five Mac. I started doing this more seriously there and, and then at the end of 2018, there was this uh, big oops uh, where basically <laughs> Apple published pictures of the iPhone XS and also the uh, Apple Watch Series 4 on their website. Like it was right there. You just had to change like one or two characters in the URL and and, and there you go. So I was the one who figured that out. Uh, and these days they... Put a, put a bunch of random gibberish in their file names to prevent that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what inspired you to to become this? The way I see it, I could call it a software miner. You know, you're digging for this stuff. Obviously, you're a developer. You know, I, I followed your your Twitter for quite a bit, and you're always uncovering these interesting things. You're digging deep into the code. You're telling us about unreleased products, unreleased services. And, and you're really good at that. How come nobody else does what you do? Are they just not motivated to do it? Or are, are, are you gifted in some way? Because I find that you're able to find a lot of this stuff before everybody else. Is, it, is this extremely difficult to do? It's hard for me to measure how difficult it is. I, I guess uh, there is a certain level of difficulty given uh, what you mentioned, but I don't think it's true to say that uh, I'm the only one. Uh, there were people doing this way before me, like Steve Troughton-Smith, uh, very famously. Yes. Uh, also, I, I'm, I haven't been doing that lately. Um, I've been focusing on, on working on my apps, which is taking up pretty much all of my time. So I, I leave that up to the, the pros now. <laughs> so I, I'm, I've been doing yeah. other stuff. And... Uh, we have also at 9to5Mac, uh, Felipe, he's been doing this for a while as well. And then he's, be, he's been getting better from the stuff I've been seeing him publish lately. Uh, so, yeah, um, I guess it's a combination of factors. Uh, it's really time consuming. Uh, I remember I spent a, a I lot of time 
with that home pods, uh, I think it was a, an entire weekend of digging and with other things also, it, it usually took a long time. Uh, but yeah, I don't think there's it, it's anything that someone, especially if, if that person is already a developer, they can probably figure things out. Uh, and even if you're not a developer, but you're interested in, the, in this stuff, if you do it for a while, you end up getting the hang of it. Yeah, you know, I think people that tune into this podcast, most people, I would say, uh, you know, see the leaks and things roll in from people like uh, Felipe Esposito, uh, like Steve Trotton-Smith. And, and so I, what I'm hearing from you is, is it's something that, you know, if you're a developer and you know what you're doing, it's kind of easy to point yourself in the right direction, but it's much harder to have the patience and the time. Yeah, exactly. And it also requires a great level of knowledge about whatever your target is, in this case, Apple. So you need to know like all Apple devices. You need to know the code names for devices. You need to know what's what's already out and what's new. So if you find some feature in code, you have to basically instinctively know if that's a new thing or if that's something that's already been there. Uh, and that requires a, a great level of knowledge of the company itself and how it operates. Well, that's really important. Like all these tools have different code names, you know, like something as simple as Apple's A14 has this long, you know, code name that's, you know, T8103, you know, and all this nonsense. So you have to really know what you're talking about, just not even from a developer's perspective, but what the hardware code names are. Yeah, my trick is that I name my devices with the model code. So I, I keep having to remember them all the time. So yeah, my my iPhone 12 Pro is called D53 and my 12 mini is D52. And I have an iPhone 10, which is the D22. So I, I just name them with the model code. So that way I, I won't forget. <laughs> That's a good way to keep track. That's that's in stark contrast to one of my earlier guests, George, who actually names his Apple products after Marvel Avengers <laughs> characters. So you know we all have our different things. Yeah. But you said you know you're shifting on you're shifting your efforts over to more of the development side, maintaining your apps. So tell us a little bit about that. What are some of the apps or things, services that you're working on that you're very excited about? You want to share that with us? Yeah, lately I, I've been focusing on AirBuddy. I released AirBuddy 2, the, the second major version of the app, in uh, late 2020, around November. And it's been doing great, fortunately. And that, so that's where I've been focusing. And it's this uh, companion app on the Mac for your AirPods and all, all of the Apple stuff you have. You can follow the battery for your iPhone, your iPads, and things like that as well. And uh, I, I think it really makes the experience of using these devices a lot better on the Mac. And that's why I made it. I made it for myself. Uh, and um, I am fortunate that a lot of people also find that to be the case. So that's where I'm focusing. And you can find out more at uh, airbuddy.app. That's what the website if you want to check it out. You know, one of the things about Airbuddy and Airbuddy 2 in particular, it's, let me tell you this, it's the first thing I installed on my new Mac. Once I unboxed the M1, it's the first thing that I went and I grabbed because I, I think it's an excellent utility. One of the things that's special about AirBuddy, and you said I designed it for me, 
And what I love about that is that's something we hear a lot at Apple is they say at Apple, we design products that we, we would want to use. And so I think there's something inherently special about the fact that you built this tool and you wanted it to be so good that it'd be something you would want to use every day. And, and that's definitely transmitted there. It, this AirBuddy 2 is one of those indispensable tools for me that really feels like Apple designed it. It's that good. And I love how you utilize Apple's own graphics that you built all that in there because something as simple as connecting AirPods to a Mac is, is if you just, if you don't have AirBuddy, it's so much more segmented than it needs to be. There's so many extra steps. There's, there's not really any animations that you're used to from your phone telling you where to go next or how to connect. And so it's this really effortless interface that feels like it's, it's distinctly Apple. Oh, thank you. And it's, yeah, it's one of these apps that, that I just love and, and I show it to everyone that I know. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely a market, and, and I can say for sure there's a market because I, I, I have the numbers, uh, that for things that, are, that make things nicer. Uh, so you can definitely use your AirPods or whatever headset you have on your Mac without AirBuddy. You don't need it. Absolutely not. Uh, and I, I do get uh, some people, some, sometimes they, they'll say, but why would I get this if I can already use my AirPods with my Mac. Well, you you can use them, but it's not as nice. It just just makes uh, things a bit nicer. And yeah, some people are fortunately willing to to pay ten bucks to to make things nicer. Definitely, and it and it's one of those things. Like you mentioned, how people will tell you, "Well, I can already do that. What's the big deal? I pair AirPods to my Mac all the time." It's the same reason why you know when people say. Why, why should I buy AirPods? I already have Bluetooth headphones. Yeah. It's the, to me, it's the same illustration being made there because there's a huge difference between Bluetooth headphones that you could buy anywhere versus AirPods. And, and where does that, where does that change lie? Where is that convenience lie? It's the convenience of being able to pair it so easily to your devices of being able to move from device to device so seamlessly. And that's what your app enables on the Mac, where in some ways Apple dropped the ball you're picking it up and, and making it easier to use this Apple hardware uh, utility on a Mac. So I, I, I really love the work you're doing with AirBuddy. Uh, you also develop an app called Chibi Studio. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that was back when uh, iMessage apps became a thing uh, in um, 2016, I believe, when Apple introduced the iMessage app store. And um, yeah, exactly. And uh, I have this friend of mine who's a, an illustrator and we were chatting about this and, and we were like, uh, you know, the, it would be cool if we could make like a, an app where people could create their own chibis uh, on iMessage by sending messages back and forth. And for those who don't know, chibis are these cute uh, Japanese characters, uh, very common in, in animes. And, and we were... Uh, very uh, big anime fans, and he's an illustrator. So I was like, uh, okay, so here's a sketch file. Uh, draw like a, a piece of hair, uh, a body, a face, and, and eyes, and, and give me the sketch file, and I, I'll figure it out. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I made a prototype. We liked it, and then we released it, and it, it, it went pretty well. It's still out there. We're still updating it and add, adding new content all the time. 
and it's it's definitely a fun little app to work on. And of course, um, it's not on iMessage mainly anymore. Like there's, the iMessage app is still there, but the vast majority of people just use the regular app. They don't use it on iMessage. And it, it was funny because initially when we created the app, it was just on iMessage. And you can still do that. Like there are apps which are only iMessage apps. They don't have an icon in the app library or the home screen. But very late in the development process of the app, we decided, well, since we built all of this, let's also make this available in the app itself. And then we did, and, and I'm very glad we did because if it was just an iMessage app, it would probably not exist anymore. <laughs> well, I love, I love this app because it, it's so creative. It's one of those things where, yeah, you know, you can do Bitmoji, you can do Animoji, but like you said, you know, these characters, the, the body, the face, these things were, were designed from the ground up. They were sketched out and there's something inherently, you know, special about, uh, about Chibi's, the nature of that character. I think that's really cool. And I think it's cool that, that you're still working on the app every day, playing with features. I saw you were implementing a form of mm -hmm. app clips that were debuted with iOS 14. You were playing with that a couple of weeks ago and you had this animation where you can tap a phone near an NFC device and it would generate a splash screen for Chibi Studio. And it's like you said, it's kind of become one of those tools for you where you can you can play with new services, new APIs that Apple drops. And I, I like to see where it goes. Yeah, definitely. Future. It's fun to have a project where there aren't that many limits as to which technologies I can incorporate into it because it's so broad and, and so flexible. And also it's an app for entertainment. So not everything has to be useful necessarily. It can be ju just for fun. Uh, so I, I have I have explored like AR and uh, the new uh, U1 stuff where you can point an iPhone towards another and, and do stuff that way. Uh, I, I've explored uh, integrating it with health kits, like so you can uh, maybe your character wow. changes uh, depending on how much you're exercising, or you you can get uh, exclusive items if you do a specific type of exercise. Uh, here's a free idea because I, I don't think that's going to be implemented anytime soon. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, we've played around with <laughs> yeah. lots of um, Apple technologies and uh, it would be like a modern. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tech. Like a Tamagotchi <laughs> or something. So if yeah, exactly. we're dating ourselves. So if you're listening and, and you're a developer, <laughs> try to, to find a, a project where there isn't much limit as to which technologies you can adopt because there are these sorts of apps where like it wouldn't make sense to add, I don't know, health kits functionality or home kits or AR, but there are other apps where basically the possibilities are endless. So whenever Apple comes up with a new technology, you can just figure out how to use it. Like uh, we added widgets with iOS 14 and that was uh, something that when I saw it, I was like, yep, definitely can do that. And we have this uh, little chibi calendar widget, which I actually use on my Mac as well. Uh, and I also use on my iPhone. And That's awesome. yeah, you can have a calendar with a, a randomly generated chibi. And some of them are really funny. Uh, so yeah, it's fun. So bouncing off of what you just said, how could you, if I were to ask you in one sentence, what would you tell 
new up and coming developers, what would be your advice to them in one sentence? I always give the same advi advice, which is basically what I did with everybody, which we just talked about is um, learn whatever you need to learn to make something you want to use yourself. Uh, so if you want a better to-do app, learn what you need to do to create a to-do app. Or if you want a better uh, calendar, learn whatever you need to make a calendar and, and make it. Uh, no matter how uh, ugly the code is or the design is, don't, you don't need to care about that stuff in the beginning. Just learn the essentials that you need to bring your idea to life and uh, slowly adopt new learnings and try to incorporate what you learn into that. Um, that's uh, how I got started with programming, basically, which was, uh, oh, I want to be able to do X. What do I need to learn to do this? Well, I need to learn this language or this framework. Let me Google whatever resources are there. For the question I get asked, probably at least once a day, how do I get started with Swift? I highly recommend uh, Paul Hudson's 100 Days of Swift, which you can find on uh, hackingwithswift.com. That's like the best way to get started for someone who's a complete beginner. Excellent. And so I, I love that. So mainly you're saying it's about gaining the skills, the tools necessary to build something that you would be delighted to use. Yeah. That yeah, you and that you definitely use, won't yeah. be on the first attempt <laughs> because you're, you're going to be just getting started. And it can be <laughs> demotivating to do something and, and you like spent a, a month working on it and you look at it and ah, this doesn't look very good. But it's that way with anything, right? When you just start learning how to cook, your first few dishes are not going to be that great. But it's one of those things where practice really does make perfect. And I think... People tend to assume that programming is like full of theory and mathematics and things like that. And it can be uh, if you want to. But if you're not into that stuff, like I hate math. I, I, I'm really not into math and I'm terrible at it. But I think I'm a pretty decent programmer and you don't have to be into that stuff. You can be a more practical programmer. Well, no doubt. So on this topic of developing you know, I, I, one of the things that I've learned is you have to be very resilient, yeah. at least mentally, mentally resilient, because it's not so much, it's that yeah. eight hole 80, 20 rule. It's, you know, 20% uh, is actually creating the app and 80% is debugging yep. and facing these roadblocks. And so you really have to be patient and, and, and have an understanding of what you're doing. And, and I, I love that you talk a lot about building something that you would want to use. I think that's, that's how you define uh, development as far as, you know, iOS goes in that platform. But to stay on topic, we did see iOS 14.5 yes. beta one uh, appear this week, earlier this week. And it seems like Apple's tying up loose ends. We have a sleeker design for the Siri interface podcast is, is, it has this new look to it that sort of emulates modern Apple Music interface. And so a lot of visual improvements here, but the main takeaway, and many people are calling this the <laughs> iOS 15 alpha, the early yeah. iOS 15 preview, <laughs> such a highly demanded feature. People are dubbing it mask ID. 
And how this works is if you own an Apple Watch and it's paired to your iPhone, you can unlock your iPhone using your Apple Watch if you're wearing a mask. Now, a lot of people are saying, why didn't they add this sooner? You know, we needed this nine months ago. What was going on at Apple? What were they thinking? And the security protocol, from my perspective, has to be more complex than people are making it out to be. So is there anything that you can offer as far as insight on that front? Because it's tricky and your iPhone can be unused to unlock your Apple Watch. And now your Apple Watch can be used to unlock your iPhone. So how do you design a secure protocol? Yeah, this is uh, way more complicated than people think it is. And this is true with most of uh, technology. I think uh, some people sometimes assume that something is really simple, but unlocking an iPhone is... um, is tricky like it's not a very simple operation there's a lot of things that happen in the background and um, it's not as simple as your apple watch telling your iphone hey please unlock your iphone can't do that because for your iphone to unlock it needs to get access to your passcode basically and that can be through your you typing your passcode which is uh, the, the simplest way or it can be with your passcode that's been tangled with this biometric identity. And so it's not something where, of course, in the end, it ends up being this dip within the guts of the secure enclave or things like that. But it's not as simple as, is this ramble? Yes, unlock. It's not that simple. It's like, here is the identity of this face I'm seeing. Can I turn unlock and turn the key to get access to this iPhone using this identity. Uh, And then you have to do that over Bluetooth, uh, which is what's done with the Apple Watch unlock, which is the same on the Mac as well. Uh, Actually, it's not completely under Bluetooth. It it happens like the initial handshake is over Bluetooth, but then it actually uses Apple's AWDL, which is Wi-Fi. But I'm not going to go into detail here because... People are probably turning off their podcast players right now. Um, But yeah, and it it (laughs) involves a bunch of stuff that's really complicated in in technology and and, and software in general, which is security, first of all, and uh, probably the hardest security problem you have on an iPhone, which is unlocking the phone. And also wireless and and radios that stuff is wild trust me i make an app that uses bluetooth that that stuff is really it does weird things and it's it's it by its nature it's unreliable so there's a, a lot of trickery that you have to do to make sure that things are reliable um so yeah this was not easy i wouldn't be surprised if they started working on this back in March and only now they came to a point where they were confident enough to ship this. And by the way, this may be removed before the final release of 14.5. They intend to release it with 14.5, but if something comes up, like they find a security flaw or it doesn't work reliably enough, they might remove it. Yeah. Yeah, this is a developer preview. This is beta one of iOS 14.5, we may never even see this feature roll out to the public. We're currently testing this out. Um, Apple prides themselves on being secure, really valuing privacy, 
And that's why we see things like our face ID data being stored on device in that secure enclave, that secure element of things like the A14 chip. I can imagine the complexity and you're illustrating it for the viewers here, which I love. I'm thrilled that we had you on that this, and you use the word software handshake and that's what it is. How do you authenticate a software handshake between an Apple watch and an iPhone? It seems easy enough, especially given that we've seen something similar with the Mac where you can use an Apple watch to unlock your Mac. Um, but, but it's, it's more than meets the eye. And I'm glad we're, we're educating people on that because a lot of people are frustrated saying, you know, why wasn't this added sooner? And I'm, I'm sure it, it took a lot of, of research and development. And Apple likes to stick to its privacy standards, which are very robust. And, you know, I can imagine that they take yeah, this exactly. very seriously. And, and you can see that by the fact that this cannot be used for purchases or for unlocking things inside of apps. So this is only for unlocking the iPhone itself. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and, and if you wanted to unlock your iPhone easier, sooner, effectively, you could just disable the passcode or just use like a super simple passcode. And it would be the same as if they had released this feature without proper security protocols. You know what I mean? Like it would basically be the same. <laughs> so if they develop this in a rush and then uh, yeah. consider all of the uh, implications, it could end up being effectively as having no passcode on your iPhone, which would, would be terrible. And I don't think people would have liked that. So yeah, I'm glad that they took their time. Of course, I would have loved to have this a few months ago, but uh, yeah, I think this will still keep being useful for the foreseeable future. Even uh, after people stop wearing masks, maybe they can expand this for, like if for some reason we can't read your face quite well, we can still use this. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy that, that this is in there. Definitely. I hope we, we see this feature yeah. make it to the public release. One of the other things that we discovered in iOS 14.5 beta 1, and this is just code. This is all we found was the code. We can't even test the feature yet. People are dubbing it Apple Card for Family. And this will supposedly allow you to share your Apple Card with individual account owners. So it's across user accounts. It'll work using an iCloud family sharing protocol. So you can share your Apple car with your spouse, maybe your children and other members of your family having multiple users. So everybody can enjoy that 3% back on purchases. Um, uh, no, because it's Apple only car? in the US and then I'm located in Brazil for those who don't know. Uh, but I would love to, like if they, if or when they ever release it here, I will definitely be getting one. Uh, and I really like the idea of this feature. And again, it's not enabled yet, but I think it was Felipe who, who found it. Yeah, I, I think back when, when I was a kid, like I would have an allowance if I did all of my chores. And, and by the end of the week, I would get like a few bucks from, from my parents. And what would be the modern equivalent of that, right? I, I guess a mini Apple card on your phone yeah. that you can use to buy coins in a game or pay for something in a grocery store. I think uh, it's definitely a good thing. And and I like to see Apple expand their family features. Like they recently are allowing developers to enable family sharing for in-app purchases. 
which I think is great. Uh, and yeah, I like that they're doing this, mm -hmm. even though I, I live by, by myself. But uh, when I eventually have a, a bigger family, I will definitely be using these features. You know, I like what you said there about a virtual allowance. This is pretty cool because Apple's building out this ecosystem. We saw uh, towards the end of last year, Apple yeah. released family sharing for Apple Watch. And so you can give your child an Apple Watch give them an allowance for the month and then they could do something as simple as press that side button to, you know, to use Apple pay and spend that allowance. You, you don't have to worry about them losing the money <laughs> unless they lose the watch, <laughs> but you don't have to worry about them carrying around, you know, change or anything like that. It's this very secure and easy way um, to, to divvy out an allowance for children. So I think that's, a, that's a cool takeaway from this, a cool way to visualize how that feature yeah might be implemented. Now, I have a question for you. We've, hold, we, we've heard this from Apple for a long time. We've heard <laughs> you're holding it wrong. What is the correct way to hold an iPad? Ooh. Landscape or portrait? Um, well, I'm always right, of course. So I'm going to say that it's the way that I hold the iPad the most. And please don't kill me, but it's portrait. <laughs> Yeah, because I agree with usually you. I'm team portrait as well, and that and, and not just because <laughs> yeah, because usually when I'm intended. holding my iPad and it's not on the smart keyboard, it's because I'm reading something, and reading is better done in portrait. Uh, but uh, when it's the uh, on the Magic Keyboard, of course, it's in, in landscape, and uh, I know where you're going. Uh, it's the Apple logo, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So good news. <laughs> Uh, OCD people, <laughs> there's a horizontal boot screen feature for the iPad. So now it can sense the orientation and how you're holding the iPad, whether that be portrait or landscape. And if it's docked onto a keyboard or if you're holding it horizontally, the Apple logo will now have well, the correct orientation. Well, I have to tell you something. It's only when the iPad is attached to the keyboard. What's that? Okay, yeah, it so wasn't me, uh, to, to be clear. Like someone shared on Twitter and... I think someone over at 9to5Mac also figured that one out. Uh, so, yeah, so okay. apparently, at least from what I heard, it's only when it's attached to the keyboard. So if you're holding your iPad in landscape, it won't change it. Uh, but I think when it's attached to the keyboard is when it's it's the most offensive, right? Uh, if, if it's just when you're holding it, uh, you, you can give it a pass, like... How many people hold the iPads uh, on their hand waiting for it to boot up? Like when it's in that state, I just leave it on a table or something. So <laughs> I don't care. But if it's upright on a table like a laptop with the, the keyboard and the logo is the, the wrong way around, that, that's kind of offensive. Like it hurts my eyes a little bit. Definitely. Well, the main <laughs> takeaway here is we're still holding it wrong. Yeah, I guess you. so. <laughs> It's intended to be held in portrait. <laughs> and I will say that to the day I die. One of the developer features we discovered in the first beta 14.5 was something called fast app termination. I'm going to break down what this says. Apple says, when this is enabled, it says terminate instead of suspending apps when backgrounded to force apps to be relaunched when they are foregrounded. So... What does this mean? Yeah, for so developers? one of the things that Apple always tells us developers when uh, working on iOS is you can't rely on your app sticking around after the user goes away from it. 
most of the time, especially with modern devices with a lot of uh, RAM, if you put the app back into the home screen by using the home gesture or pressing the home button, you come back to that app after a few hours, it's probably still going to be there because they have enough RAM where they can keep it around. But there's this uh, feature, so this technology called uh, state restoration on iOS, and it's on the Mac as well, where basically any app has to be resilient to basically being killed at any point by the operating system. Uh, so the idea is when the user uh, goes away from your app, like they go to another app, your app might die in, in the middle of that because the OS needs more RAM, so it's just going to kill your app. Uh, your, your app is going to save a little okay. bit of data uh, to the SSD on the device that tells it uh, which screen it was on, like how much further down you, you had scrolled to, basically any like state that uh, the app can have. Like if it's a podcast player, like which episode episode was playing and uh, how many minutes in you were. Uh, so that when the user goes and, and, and taps your app icon again, it's gone. The user hasn't killed it themselves. So they expect the app to go back to where it was. And that that's um, something that, that's implemented so that even if an app gets killed in the background, the user most of the time won't even be aware because they, it just goes back to where it was. Uh, and this feature is basically something for the developers. So this is only available from the developer menu, which you get when you uh, enroll a device within Xcode. It installs this little developer settings menu and there's a bunch of stuff in there. So if you turn this on and you go back to the home screen from your app, it's going to simulate what happens when the device needs more RAM and it's going to basically kill your app. And this is so that you can more easily test your state restoration code. That's the, the gist of it. So to break this down, what we're zeroing in on here is this interface so we can picture it is where you know you flick up from the bottom or double click if you have a home button and you see all the apps slide in, all the apps that you have open, and you know people normally would flick them out, and they, they see that, that as the okay. I'm freeing up memory on my <laughs> phone. Don't do that. Yeah, it's very bad for the phone. We've seen a lot of people poke fun at this fast app termination feature, saying, "Hey, you know, can't wait to see this on TikTok when you know people are marketing it as a life hack for your phone battery to last longer because it's it's cutting your memory." Um, <laughs> is that is uh... that fair? I mean, uh, there's fair? a pretty significant barrier, which is you have to download and install Xcode <laughs> to be able to get the developer menu. It's not something that you can do with just your phone. So the tutorial, the TikTok tutorial would be like, hey, check this out. Download this 12 gigabyte file and wait uh, for 20 minutes while it unzips and then run it and... Log in with your Apple ID, plug your iPhone in, wait for it to process. And every time you update iOS, you have to do this again. <laughs> like, I, I don't think anyone, any regular user out there is going to want to do this. I haven't tried this out myself yet, but I wonder if maybe this will only apply to apps that have been installed through Xcode because the device knows which apps are from the App Store, which apps are okay. from, from TestFlight, and, and which apps are from Xcode. 
So maybe this will only work for apps that are not from the App Store. And if it's not like that right now, they could probably quite easily change this feature so that it only affects uh, apps installed through Xcode. Because even like if the developer leaves this enabled by accident and then all of their apps start behaving weirdly, <laughs> like you, you're you in Overcast, you press the home button and the podcast stops playing, I think that would be yes. kind of weird. <laughs> well, it's one of those things... As you said earlier, Apple's telling developers, hey, you know, don't always count on the fact that once a user flicks the app out from the bottom, that it's it's going to be simply just resting. It might go to sleep at some point as the as the phone needs more memory. So this this fast app termination forces all the apps to go to sleep once you've flicked that bottom bar. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I love how. How you change it to go to sleep, and I was saying that the device kills the app. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, developers. Are That's very actually the, the technical term, though. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Yeah, kill the app. Yeah. Oh yeah, kill the app. Mm -hmm. The app killer. I remember the early days. You know, when when we had these apps, and they were literally called app killers, and you push one button, it would supposedly clear the RAM. Oh, RAM cleaners. Those were the early days <laughs> of iOS. Uh, it's not like your operating system has yeah. a thing called memory <laughs> management. Yeah, exactly. Don't uh, do it, folks. That's why you shouldn't flick out the apps. Unless it's Facebook. Flick out, long <laughs> press, delete. No tracking allowed. Yep. <laughs> yeah. If you care any bit about your privacy. So Apple's been sort of pilfering these experts from car manufacturers. And the latest one here is from Porsche. He's a chassis VP and Apple sort of poached him. I guess you could say that uh, near the end of last year, quarter four, 2020. And so this is, this is sort of reviving the Apple car rumors, which are ongoing. Um, a lot of people have poked fun at this and said, okay, is there going to be, you know, an Apple car, Apple car pro Apple car pro max, because we've seen, we've heard that Apple's partnering with not only Porsche, but manufacturers like Hyundai and Kia. So I could, I could see how Hyundai and Kia may be like a mid range sort of the iPhone 12 of cars. And then maybe the 12 pro 12 pro max is the Porsche of cars. You know, are you looking forward to I an hope Apple they do car? a mean Are you willing to well. spend the big bucks? On <laughs> it will this, be like Mr. for Rainbow. one person. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> the Mini Cooper, the, the I mean, the not Apple. really. Like, I'm not a car person. I've never owned a car. I do have a driver's license, but uh, where I live, I don't really need a car to go anywhere. And it's not something I enjoy. And it's also expensive and, and has ongoing costs. So I prefer to, to not own a car. If yes. I were to have a car, I would want an electrical car, definitely electric car like Tesla or, or Apple in this case. But it would probably be super expensive. Uh, so like more like a, a luxury vehicle. So they'll be around the same yeah, price. So yeah, that this is really not <laughs> not something for me, but I I'm definitely interested in, in all of the rumors and and I I would love to to ride one when it's out, but probably not own one. 
you know, I'm with you. I'm not huge on cars. You know, I don't, I don't have any interest in collecting cars. Uh, you know, I don't drive. Um, but to get to the meat and potatoes here, it says Cuprentino hired this guy, Manfred Herrer. And I hope I'm not butchering. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And he's a Porsche executive with expertise in chassis design. So people are saying Mr. Herrer is known as the hidden champion and quote, the yeah. measure of all things in his field. This guy knows what he's doing. He worked with the Volkswagen group for more than 13 years before he left at the end of last year without telling his former colleagues where he was headed. And he was headed for Cupertino. <laughs> he hasn't changed his LinkedIn yet. So we'll see if that happens. But moving on, Apple is asking developers to Ooh. return their DTK, their developer trans transition kit, their Mac minis. Apple is asking them to return those for $200 credit. What do you think of that two hundred? Well, I've credit? been um, thinking about this, and uh, feels kind of—I don't know—weird for me to talk about it, given that I don't have one. Uh, so uh, it's hard for me to like put myself in the shoes of of the people who had them, and also I'm not fully aware of the whole situation. But if this was me, and I had. Uh, gotten the the dtk for the 500 bucks and they were now offering the, the 200 credits for having them back i would be okay with it like I, I i wouldn't yeah i wouldn't feel like i'm being so you would be okay with or it. something uh because i've seen some very strong reactions um but uh i understand that they had some <laughs> technical issues and things like that but like the dtk is not a product um I I think uh, it's one of those cases where controlling expectations is important. So you paid 500 bucks to get access to a developer kit, which Apple said is not a product. Uh, so you should not expect support or for it to keep working past uh, the time necessary for you to do your thing. And uh, Apple didn't promise it, they would give anything back. Mm -hmm. So you're getting something back, uh, 200 bucks. Uh, I mean, it would be great if they gave you the 500 back, but that's not what they're doing. So I think it's seems like people's expectations were a bit high as to what they would get back from this. Well, that's an important takeaway. So, so let's break this down for the viewers. So if you were a developer... Your eyes are glued to the television or the Mac or iPhone, wherever you're watching it. WWDC 2020 premieres. June 2020, people are glued to the screen. They're watching this. Apple says, we're transitioning the Mac to Apple Silicon. Here it comes. We're doing it. Finally, we're ditching Intel. And the way we're going to get started is we're going to issue a select number of developers these DTK kits, these developer transition kits. And all this is is a Mac Mini, as you've seen it. It's missing a few ports, but the important takeaway is it has an A12Z Bionic chip with some caked up memory. It's got 16 gigs of RAM as opposed to the Paltry uh, 8, 6 to 8 in an iPad Pro. But basically, this is an iPad Pro chip in a Mac Mini. And it's going to help these developers optimize their apps for the upcoming consumer version Apple Silicon, we now know as the M1 Mac. MacBook Pro and MacBook Air. It's going to help these developers developers optimize their apps 
Now, now they buy into this, right? They pay $500 for this Mac mini with an iPad chip in it. Now Apple is saying, hey, get ready to send it back to us for $200 credit. So basically, this is a $300 buy-in to get early access. And you're saying that sounds fair. Here's my proposition. Return the DTK, you get all your money back, and you get 30% off of a new M1 Mac. Because <laughs> people like that figure, 30%. Been very controversial. But let's make it fair because we all know the money you're making off your app is going to go toward that next mat. <laughs> and I say that I don't know. Uh, you know, very facetiously. facetiously. I'm not a, nat a native speaker. You're, you're I'm the, being the guy facetious here, so when I tell say me that. if it's a, a um, real word. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll say this. I'm being facetious when I say that. You know, that's my proposition. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, also to be clear, like they, they, said from the get-go that they would need those back. Uh, and uh, the people who were in the program got a bunch of uh, documentation and, and also had to sign a bunch of, of documentation and NDA and things like that. So I, I think people going in knew what they were signing up for. That's uh, basically what uh, my argument is here. Definitely. And moving on to our next story... We have a PSA for you guys. The YouTube app on Apple TV 3G will lose support later this year in March, next month. So if you're hanging on to a 2012 Apple TV 3G, just be aware you may lose access to YouTube this March. So um, why haven't we there's seen no money in it? <laughs> we, we have thought about it, but like... Um... Yeah, and uh, I'm not saying I will never do anything for the Apple TV, but it, to me, it looks clear that it's for media apps uh, and games and things like that, but not for something like Chibi Studio where you create something. Um, and uh, it's funny because I saw this uh, news for and sure. I was thinking, well, why do I care? I have a 4K Apple TV. Then I remembered that in the guest bedroom at my apartment here, I have one of these old Apple TVs. <laughs> so it won't have access to YouTube anymore. But it's basically just an AirPlay receiver there. So it's not that big a deal. Yeah, you know, it, a lot of people I know because they do just use it for media uh, are hanging on to these Apple TV 3Gs, the third generation Apple TV. You know, and this is from 2012. So about a decade later, Apple's saying, okay, you know, YouTube's not going to be available anymore. So what Apple is saying here is the plug is finally being pulled on YouTube for these Apple TV third generations. A lot of people I know are still hanging on to them. Um, so, you know, it's unfortunate, but it kind of, it's that sting in my heart that what I felt when I upgraded then? to iOS 6. You remember that? Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The iOS when used to have a built-in YouTube ad. I had forgotten about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a lot of us may not remember. Earlier in the podcast, we talked about that 30% figure, and that's been popular, that's been in the news because of the whole Tim Apple versus Tim Epic debacle here. Um, if you guys aren't familiar, uh, Epic Games tried to infiltrate the App Store, integrate their own payment system, which violates the App Store rules. So Apple took Fortnite off the App Store, and it started this whole thing about antitrust, and developers all around the world are saying, I'm, you know, I'm not happy with the cut that I'm getting. Apple's taking, you know, 70% of the money from me. I'm only getting 30%. 
Well, initially, when all of this started, I I was uh, siding more towards the epic side of the battle, and also when the whole hay stuff happened, until I saw the people behind mm -hmm. this stuff and how they were acting, and then I changed my mind. And I'm not saying I'm I'm on Apple's side because I don't. I think stuff has to change with regards to to not the just the app store but also with what you can do with the device that you own i think we should be allowed to run whatever we want on our devices that's uh my my view so i, I think and if apple would allow for people to run unsigned apps or um, notarized apps uh, yeah basically sideloading on on ios they would solve this problem basically and at the same time it would be a technical challenge of course but it wouldn't kill the app store definitely would not uh, i think it's well established now and even if they allow sideloading, you probably have a bunch of hoops you have to jump through. Uh, it wouldn't be as easy on the Mac as on the Mac, I think. Uh, so I don't, don't think it would be that big a deal if they did that. Like it would be great yes. for people who, who want to do this stuff, but uh, yeah, I don't think it would be that huge a problem. Uh, and I think the way Epic went around this was not the right way uh, by basically subverting the the app store and then doing what they did with the whole um, like hiding features in the app and then enabling them later to bypass in-app purchases uh, i don't think that's uh, that's a good thing to do yeah that that in plain terms was you know was against the rules um it, it was a lot of people said it have said it's it was unfair it's not the right way to challenge the system uh, but I want to be clear on this because I believe I misspoke. Just kidding, lost in the numbers. And this is, so when you create an app, and this has changed since then, we'll get into this. And this app is generating revenue, whether it be in-app purchases, whatever it is. Apple is taking 30% of your revenue. And this is something standard. This is what we see with video games, uh, things of that nature. This is this has been in place on digital stores. What I always go back to, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but what I've heard is, you know, when T when Steve Jobs marched onto that stage and he said, we're only taking 30%, a lot of people jumped out of their seats and started clapping because the carriers before were taking, you know, 75 to 80% of that revenue for the, from these small any developers that were making apps for the BlackBerry. And things like yeah, that. Yeah, I think is, it is, is but at the same time, I, I don't think true looking back that far is uh, something that we should be doing right now. Like, just because back in 2006, Definitely. developers were paying 75%, and when it was announced, the 30% were uh, considered to be a really good deal, doesn't mean that today it's still a good deal. And in fact, it looks like it wasn't because it has changed, right? That's right. For small developers that are making less than a million bucks with their app per year. And it was really funny Apple when was this was announced because you could clearly, clearly see who made more than a million and who made less than a million 
based on their reaction on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And, and what's interesting about this is, you know, fine, that's great that some change is being integrated, but there's a lot more work to do. As you said, you know, we're making these comparisons that are nearly a decade old. You know, the market has changed and, you know, we have developers that make a living off of developing software for the iOS platform. And, you know, as we move forward, you know, what does that mean for the developers? A lot of people are saying, you know, this is just, these are developers being greedy and always want more, wanting more of a piece of the Yeah, pie. absolutely. Well, you can um, say that on both and, sides. And uh, this is a, a big change. Uh, like, uh, it looks, it, it doesn't look like a, a big thing when you just look at the number. Oh, it's, it used to be 30, now it's 15. All right, what's the big deal? Well, first of all, the actual increase in revenue to developers because of this change was over 15% because math. And as you know, I don't like math, so I'm not going to explain it here. But it was, I think, around 21% increase. And this <laughs> this is a big deal. Like It could be the difference between an indie developer becoming like a company and hiring a second developer or, or hiring a designer. This could be the difference between them doing that or not. This could be the difference between someone who currently has a job and, and has an app as a side project being able to go indie or not. And and it, it does make a big difference. And Definitely. I must say, I, I even though my main source of income is not my stuff that's in the App Store, my main, main source of income is everybody, which is not in the App Store, I have noticed a difference, like, and I've been investing more in, in marketing and in development. So I would say this is definitely positive for everyone because, okay, Apple is going to make less. All right. They have all the money in the world already. And they benefit because this increases interest in their platform. Any developer starting out today, uh, some people got caught up in like yes. the details of oh but you have to sign up for this small developer program this was for existing developers if you're a new developer if you sign up today to become an apple developer you start out with the 15 percent. you don't have to sign up for, for anything else you just create your developer account start uh, an app launch your app and you start with the 15 percent, and you only start paying 30 if you go beyond that million dollar limit uh, so I I would say this is really, really good. And that's the thing. The way I see it is, you know, Apple is the heart of the operation. They're offering the marketplace, but the soul of the operation are the developers that offer these services, all this functionality. You know, these products wouldn't be what they are without the developers. And Apple does need to start treating these developers better. The thing that I don't like, yeah. and, and we've seen this, is Apple does play favorites, you know. We saw with Amazon from the get-go, they were only paying 15%. And they're the second most valuable company in the world. You know, second Apple, they're generating the most revenue. And Yeah, and also know, what bothers like me that, uh, is when they lie, basically. You know, as a developer. Uh, when Tim Cook gave his statements at the antitrust hearing, one of the things he said was that Apple's apps follow the exact same rules as third-party developers, which is a complete lie. Any developer knows that. Uh, even people who are not developers know that. Uh, and back then, I, I think I gave the example that 
And I'm not saying that this shouldn't be the case. I'm just saying that he lied, basically. Uh, I, I gave... Yeah, I gave the example back then. If you install the Clips app, yeah, it's a, uh, the it's Clips not app comes comparison. pre-installed if you buy a new iPhone. But if you have an iPhone and you don't have the Clips app, you can go into the App Store and download the Clips app from Apple. And when you launch it, it doesn't ask for camera permission because it has a special little permission because it's an Apple app. And I'm not saying you should not. Like, it's an app from Apple. Of course, it can access my camera, but... They are not following the same rules, and that's just a small example. Like there are many more examples I could give. Yeah, and that sort of that sort of gets into the the privacy end of it. Is you know Apple is saying we we want all developers to stick to these privacy guidelines that we've set in place. Yeah, exactly. And yet we don't even ask for camera access when you download our app. Now, when you think of the built-in camera, just an app called Camera. Yeah. When you think of that, and you think asking permission every time you want to take a photo. That's absurd. But downloading something from the App Store, like the Clips app, I, I think that's a fair comparison. You know, I'm, I'm glad that you stated that because that really breaks down the essence of it and how, you know, I, I don't like how Apple plays favorites and I don't like how they lie. And, and it's one of those things, you know, we go back to the conversation yeah. that, that Steve Jobs had with Walt Mossberg about sneaky developers. And he said, you know, and what did he say in that statement? He said, sometimes people are sneaky and sometimes people lie. And sometimes people upload an app that they say does one thing and it does another. And in some yeah, and then the, the simple here. example and, I know, gave gets to the heart the of the exactly antitrust that. situation, which is all about competition. If I'm a developer and I want to make an app that uh, is similar to what the Clips app from Apple does, I am at a disadvantage because not just because like, of course, I'm going to be at a disadvantage because Apple has engineers who know the intricacies of the OS and they will probably have better technical knowledge than, than I would. But I think that's fair. That's totally fair. But I'm at a, a technical disadvantage when Apple's app, which is in the App Store right alongside my own app, doesn't need to ask permission to use the camera, but I have to go through this whole process of convincing the user that I am trustworthy for them to give me permission to use the camera. Uh, and I think that gets to the, the the core of what the antitrust situation is in the App Store. So the latest report in this fight between Apple and Epic Games is, is about Tim Cook. And this comes from Gizmodo. And apparently Epic Games originally wanted to depose Cook in court for eight hours. And so Apple saw this and said, heck no, we're going to cite the Apex Doctrine. And they believe that this doctrine um, can prevent Cook from being deposed at all, right? And then now, now they've conceded to four hours, but how did they get there? So the judge, Thomas Hickson, he says, quote, this dispute is more than meets the eye, end quote. And he says, the Apex Doctrine doesn't make Cook exempt, but it can lessen the number of hours that he has to be deposed. So they <laughs> settle on four hours. And the judge says, no, it must be seven. That's my ruling. Yeah. Right? Tim Cook's got to come in. He's got to testify for seven hours. Now, that's a long time. What are you hoping to hear from Tim Cook? Well in all of this as with most of this say? stuff and to be completely honest i don't know what i want to hear <laughs> but 
as is usually the case with this stuff, it will probably be six and six and a half hours of technicalities and legal stuff and half an hour of actual interesting content. So I'm, I'm putting this out there that mm -hmm. whenever this happens and if this becomes public, I don't know if this will be public or maybe afterwards it will be public, someone compile the best moments <laughs> because I'm not willing to watch seven hours or, or like read seven hours of speech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah please i want the yeah i want the cnet supercut on youtube afterwards you know it's one of those things and apple's good about this they're good about saying when they need to when they absolutely need to hey we made a mistake you know and and they're they're good at being very humble about that you know i want to see tim cook up there i want him to say you know we've taken a good hard look at this and we realize that we've made some mistakes and we've done some things that aren't fair and, and, you know, we need, need to make this right. Is the fight between Apple and Epic Games the place to do that? I don't think so. Because, like you said, the way that, that Epic Games has constructed this fight is, is totally baseless. It's, they're not really with the indie developers. They've made that clear. This is, this is just an instance of the rich trying to make themselves richer. Um, part, of this, the, this, part of this fight... Apple had pushed to subpoena Samsung's internal communications, and they wanted to use this to prove that the App Store policies are similar to, to their competitors. And Judge Hickson also denied this. He said, no, I, we're not going to do that. You can't subpoena Samsung. That would be nothing more than, quote, a quirky yeah. deep dive into Samsung and Epic's relationship. And for those of you that don't, yeah, for those of you that don't know, um, Samsung uh, also axed Fortnite from the Play Store or from the Galaxy Store. Sorry, after this all went down. Yeah, did, I think did, so. Do you think that uh, that's something didn't that Google could have helped Apple? Do you think it's even relevant? Yeah, that's yeah. The important takeaway. Uh, it was also yeah. So I, I, I think um, shortly after there's definitely an argument to be had. Year. Like, hey, uh, they were also on these other guys' stars, and and they did the same thing. So why us? Uh, and I know that Epic is also suing the others, but yeah, it's a an interesting uh, thought. And and also in the the, the situation of the comp competition, it is very tricky, right? Because Apple they they are not the major player in terms of of numbers as uh, would qual would qualify for a monopoly in the traditional sense of the, the technical term. Um, like, uh, if I don't like the the App Store, I can go in and mm -hmm. buy an Android device and use the Google Store. But at the same time, if I own an iPhone, I have no choice but to use the App Store. And that that's where things get complicated because isn't the... Like, isn't the company who developed Definitely. the platform like entitled said, there's, there's, to having its own app store user. and deciding which app store goes into their platform? I think maybe, but uh, it's it's really tricky uh, because, uh, yes. yeah, it's almost like, oh, they got <laughs> so big that we need to punish them <laughs> for some reason. Uh, but at the same time, like I mentioned, uh, 
I, I think the best solution in, in this situation <laughs> would be to allow sideloading because then you eliminate all of these questions. You don't have to force Apple to allow third-party app stores, but maybe you can politely ask Apple that maybe you should consider letting users install whatever they want on, on these things. <laughs> exactly. Pretty please, can I install what I... <laughs> whatever I want on this device that I paid $1,200 for, you know, when, when you word it that way, it's just, it, it's infuriating. One of the things that I've thought about is why hasn't Apple implemented a version of gatekeeper on, on the iPhone, on the iPad? Why haven't we seen that with iOS devices? Because that's the go-to solution um, for the Mac, you know, obviously uh, Airbuddy 2 isn't on the App Store. I had to download it online. I had to use a gatekeeper in order to do that. And that's Apple's software that it sort of uses to prevent malicious applications from the internet to, from being downloaded to your computer. It makes you, it asks you, it comes up with a pop-up yeah. window and it says, do you want to install this? Here are some of the risks. Yeah, that makes sense. And they try um, to do that to scare you because it's I, an online application. I think maybe it could be because the reason why Gatekeeper exists on the Mac is because it's always been like that, right? You've always been able to install third-party software from whatever source you want on the Mac. And the Mac App Store imposes limitations on what the apps can do to a point where many apps just wouldn't be possible in the Mac App Store. And everybody is one of them. Like I use APIs that I wouldn't be able to use in the App Store. And also, I, I, I do have some sandboxing has the restrictions that I need to bypass um, for good reasons, like not because I'm being sneaky or anything. So I think they probably realize that if Definitely. they remove the capability on the Mac for people to run whatever they want, they will basically kill the Mac. And um, in the case of the iPhone, it's always been like that. So... There isn't that pressure of, oh, but people have been able to install whatever they want. And now how can we close this? Uh, so, yeah, I think that's the thing. Even with the addition of the Mac App Store, we saw Apple implement Gatekeeper because before the App Store, that's the way things had been. You know, before Mac OS Lion, you didn't have an App Store. You went online and you downloaded the applications that you needed. You paid for them with various different payment methods, you know, and, and it, it was kind of everybody saw Gatekeeper just from a consumer perspective as this transitionary tool. Like, OK, one day everything you need is going to be on the App Store and one day, you know, Gatekeeper will assist, fail to exist. But it, it's still there and people still need to use it because of the limitations of the App Store. Yeah, I would I definitely love that, as you probably noticed. Like uh, and, and again, it, it is perfectly possible to do that without completely destroying the security of the device. I think many people worry that this would mean that the iPhone is not secure anymore, and I don't think that has to be the case. Uh, not to say that the Mac is perfectly secure, but it, it's definitely been improved. And what they've done with Gatekeeper was basically to allow for sideloading while at the same time keeping keeping everything secure. And basically, the people responsible for worrying about Gatekeeper are Apple and developers. The users don't usually don't have to worry about it. If you are a developer, 
in order to distribute your app outside the Mac App Store, there are things you have to do in order for the user to not get like a super scary, this app will damage your Mac, you should move it to the trash dialogue. <laughs> that, that's exactly what it says. Uh, if you don't get, if, if you were as a developer, don't want the user to see yes. that, you, there's a, a lot of steps you have to go through. And yeah, I think it's fair. Like, uh, of course. Uh, there's lots of intricacies involved in implementing something like that. That's the important takeaway is this is great food for thought. You know, but but what would this mean? Would this mean that, you know, these 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 companies like Netflix, like Amazon, they want the whole piece of the pie. They don't want to be paying, you know, any any amount. They don't want to be paying 15 or 30 to Apple. You know, that's not even a question for them. They just want the whole pie. They want their cake and they want to eat it, too. And could they is, is could we see a world where the, the bigger companies are subverting the App Store in favor of this? you know, this gatekeeper-based way of accessing apps. Yeah, and you, you can compare it to Android. It's, it's uh, an you can sideload on Android. And I think it was Epic, right? They tried to distribute their uh, game only through that method and it didn't work very well. Like people didn't want to do it or it had issues and it would compromise the device. Uh, so even though it is possible to sideload stuff there, it didn't kill Google Play and people aren't, doing it all the time most people never do it so i think it would be perfectly fine well congratulations you guys have reached the end of the show and that means it's time for this week in apple crime this week in baltimore maryland a t-mobile heist went down two 15 year old juveniles entered a t-mobile store at around 7:35 p.m said, hey, we have guns. Don't mess with us. They start ripping iPhones off the table. They stole over $2,000 worth of merchandise from the store, chiefly iPhones. Get this. They flee the store with a bag of iPhones and hop into a getaway car with a 17-year-old female driver. So I'm just kind of thinking, how does this play out? Did they say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to break in. We're going to steal all this stuff. And hey, who, who can we get as a, maybe your big sister, maybe get your big sister. We'll jump in. It'll all work out. I'm sure. There's yeah. No tracking stuff on uh, I, I mean, stealing iPhones is here. like the we'll dumbest crime us. you can commit, <laughs> uh, especially from stars, like from people, maybe not so much. But um, I don't know how common this is uh, in, in other countries, but uh, at least here in, in Brazil. And unfortunately, we have a fairly high crime rates in some places. Uh, and uh, it's very common that you'll get your iPhone stolen. Never happened to me or anyone I know, but in some places like Rio, it, it happens a little bit more often. And uh, you start getting these messages like, oh, this is from Apple support. We want to recover your iPhone. Your, we found your iPhone. Just send us your Apple ID because the bad guys get the iPhone, but they can't unlock it and they can't reactivate mm -hmm. it. And um, at this point, I think many iPhones that are stolen end up being sold for parts. That's the thing, because if you steal an iPhone that has a passcode on it, which most, most iPhones do, um, most iPhones have Touch ID and Face ID, one of those, you know, it's, it's not really worth trying to get into it. You won't have any luck there. You won't be able to use it. So you're seeing all these things being sold for parts. <laughs> on the back I'm of just an trying napkin. to break down the thinking behind this. 
you know, did they plan this <laughs> yeah, at lunch? Yeah, this is uh, this was not like, very Wait, well we thought out. We need a getaway out. car. Call your sister. <laughs> quite, quite the story. I mean, to plan this out to have a getaway car, and you, you know, do you think? I don't think they were smart enough that, that they were going to be able to sell these for parts. I, I don't think. Were they planning on using these things? You know, <laughs> did they not know that they can be tracked? That there's iCloud and everything else. They found them before they were even they even made their way to the car. Before they even made it to the car, the the shopping store manager, uh, $2,000 worth of Apple products. They just forgot to pay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, all they did was they just wanted an iPhone each. Well, Mr. Rambo, it's been amazing having you on the podcast. Thank you guys for unwrapping the tech. Of yeah, the sure. Day. You can find me Rambo, on Twitter. I am at underscore inside. I'm also you? on Instagram, which I think was where you found me. So uh, that's uh, my name, Guilherme Rambudois. And you can leave the uh, full thing there because it's a long name, hard to type. And there's a number. And uh, Yeah. So leave a link in the show notes to my Instagram so people can find me. <laughs> And I put some pe- some pictures of Apple devices there, so it's uh, fun to follow. In the show notes, it'll be down there, ladies and gentlemen. Take a look at the show notes. Definitely. Again, thank you for unwrapping the tech of today with me, your host, Bram Shank. If you like this show, go ahead and give it a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you watch the show. If you didn't like this show, tell your friends about it. They might like it. Thank you guys for tuning in, and we'll see you again next awesome. week. Awesome. Thanks that for hanging fun. with us.